Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13, if you are using one of the hardback Bibles, you'll find it on page 921. Uh, This morning we're going to finish the chapter. Last week we looked at the first uh, 12 verses. Um, This week we'll... Uh, look, verses 13 to 52. Uh, since it's kind of long and since I'm going to jump around a little bit, uh, there, I'll ask you just to remain seated as we, we read God's Word together. Acts 13, beginning in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said... I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Before His coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And John was finishing his course and he said, uh, said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not He. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers This He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are My Son, today I have begotten You. And as for the fact that He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore He also says in another psalm, You will not let Your Holy One see corruption. And then down verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. 
And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Down in verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, as the, uh, the author of these words, the one who uh, inspired these words through the pen of, of Dr. Luke, uh, we pray that You would now use them in our own lives uh, to strengthen our faith, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. We pray all of this in His name. Amen. Preaching through um, any kind of uh, lengthy narrative like Acts, anytime you're preaching through a book like this, um, can sometimes be a little bit like uh, watching your favorite TV series, uh, except watching uh, while it's coming out. You know, that this is how everything worked back in the old days. But now we just sit down and binge watch, you know, everything. But, you know, when you get really kind of hooked on The Crown, and when you get really hooked on whatever the latest sort of Netflix series is, the, the first one, it'll come out, and then you watch it, and then you realize, or the PBS stuff, you'll sit there and you'll watch it, and then you realize, I've got to wait a whole nother week before the next episode comes out. And they left you kind of in a... In a cliffhanger spot, they left you wanting more. I hope that, that reading and certainly preaching through books like Acts is a little bit like that. You stop and you realize, I kind of stopped in the middle of an event. I kind of stopped in the middle of a story, in the middle of some activity. And now I've got to wait a whole nother week to get the rest of the story, the rest of the event. We left Paul and Barnabas in Cyprus, and here now they're leaving Cyprus and they're heading towards uh, this Pisidian Antioch. It's a different Antioch than the Sending Church. There were several Antiochs back in the day, and uh, this is a different one than their Sending Church. They're not, they didn't go home. So verse 13, they didn't go back to where they came from. They, they're in kind of modern-day Turkey area. Uh, they, they've, they've left Cyprus. They're continuing their, their mission trip. They're really in the middle of a mission trip. Um, and uh, when they get, uh, just before they get to, to Antioch, uh, John Mark leaves them. Uh, John, in our versions, it's, it's John Mark. It's uh, perhaps the author of the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. Um, Barnabas' cousin. Uh, but we aren't told why he left. We aren't given that information. There's all sorts of speculation as to why he was homesick. He was angry because Paul was kind of becoming the leader and his cousin now no longer was. Um, people have come up with all sorts of ideas as to why he left. What's fascinating, though, is you'll see this again. Uh, this will come back up in a couple of different places. The fact that John, uh, that John Mark has, has left... Paul and Barnabas and returned to Jerusalem. 
So Paul and Barnabas, when they get to Antioch, uh, this, this Antioch in Pisidia, uh, their, their practice, their common practice was to go to the, the synagogues. Um, if there was a synagogue in town, Paul went there. And there are a couple of places you'll watch, and there, there was no synagogue, and so he doesn't, there's no mention of it. Uh, but they, they begin, they start where they know they'll find the Jewish people gathered together. They're in the synagogue on the Sabbath, on Saturday. The law is read, the prophets are read, and then Paul is invited to speak. Incidentally, one of the, one of the, one of the questions I get from time to time is, you know, like stuff like, how do you decide what like a worship service at Grace Covenant is going to look like? Uh, the reality is the answer could be, well, I made it up, which that would not be true. The answer could be, well, I got it from the synagogue. Uh, the, the reality is New Testament, New Covenant worship reflects a lot of what they saw in the synagogue. They read the word, they sang the word, they preached the word and applied it to God's people. That's not a description of what we Well, it is a description of what we do. But it's not like the reformers had to just figure out, well, what are we going to do now? The reality is the synagogue has sort of set the pattern for worship throughout the centuries. And you see here, the, the law is read, Scripture is read, and then Paul is invited to come and preach. Notice a couple of things about Paul's sermon. The first is, he knew his audience. Now, I don't know that he'd been there before. I don't mean that he's, he's been to that church. He's been in that synagogue before. That he'd met them. That he had dinner with them. That he'd been around town. The point is, he knew where he was. He knew he was in a synagogue with Jewish people and with God-fearing Gentiles. Look at verse 16. He begins, men of Israel and you who fear God. Look down at verse 26. He did it again. Brothers. Sons of the family of Abraham, that's Jewish people, and those among you who fear God. The God-fearing Gentiles are those that have, have essentially converted to Judaism without circumcision and dietary laws. Uh, we saw this with Cornelius earlier back in chapter 10. There are Gentiles, devout God-fearing Gentiles, living and moving uh, in these Jewish synagogue circles. It matters because you notice Paul doesn't explain every detail about the history of, of Israel. In fact, if you were to write a paper for your history teacher like what Paul preaches in this chapter, you probably wouldn't get an A. He literally jumps 400 years. God chose our fathers. They were in, in Egypt, in slavery. He caused Israel to grow even though they were slaves and oppressed. And, and all, he, they, they became great. They grew in number such that the Egyptians were afraid. And then he brought them out of Egypt and, and led them through the wilderness and into the promised land. And then he says, and that's about 450 years. 
you're not allowed to cover 450 years on a history paper in two sentences. But his audience knew exactly what he was talking about. He didn't re- have to. He didn't have to recount the details because everyone in the room is immediately there. Okay, right, got it. Yep, I was there. Yeah, we've read that. I know all about that. My parents have taught me that. Been heard. I mean, I've heard that read in the synagogue my whole life. I'm totally tracking with you, Paul. I know exactly where you are. By the way, we, you and I would do well to catch up. You and I would do well not to ignore those parts of the Old Testament that they had memorized that make us scared. That they had committed to memory that they totally understood that you and I go, uh, yeah, I don't know, I'm just going to skip ahead. Let me get to, never mind, I'll just go to Joshua. That's kind of fun. You and I would do well to catch up with these first century believers, ultimately. So Paul can recount the, the history of Israel and, and do it um, fairly quickly, but also clearly. The fact is, we'll see in Acts 17, when he's in Athens, Greece, he, he doesn't do this. They don't know this. This isn't their history. And so he approaches the gospel from a different perspective. But you also notice... That Paul preaches the Bible. I don't know if there's anybody ever, I'm, I'm going to jump out there, ever with as drastic a conversion story as Paul. There's some crazy ones out there. I mean, there's some wild, mind-blowing, you were doing what, and now you're what? I mean, there's some, there's some stuff. I don't think there's ever been anybody with as drastic and as, as, as mind-blowing a conversion as Paul. And yet, he never once, or at least so far, it's not until later in Acts when he's standing before kings and rulers that he has to kind of recount his story. He doesn't tell his story. He doesn't stand up in the synagogue and say, let me tell you about my experience. Let me tell you about my life. Let me tell you about me. He opens the Bible. They've read the law. They've read the prophets. And he said, let me tell you what that means. This is, this is where we get our pattern. You don't come here to hear me. I'm not that interesting. I'm not that exciting. You, you would all leave. You'd go home much sooner. You'd fall asleep faster if I was talking about me. You come to hear God speak in and through His Word. And this is the pattern of the synagogue. It's the pattern of the church since the earliest days. Notice what Paul preaches. Got to be honest. So, okay, so I just told you you don't come to hear stories about me. Now I'm going to tell you a story about me. I, I literally, I literally this past Monday, I, I opened Acts 13 to kind of reread again and kind of get back into the thought of this coming sermon and leave last week's sermon behind. I literally, I, I mean, I literally had to go and open my computer and make sure that I was reading the right passage. I literally thought, I've already done this. 
Like, did I just do this? What did I preach yesterday? Like, I, I literally had to go back and open the last sermon and make sure and kind of dig back through and then look back through Acts to make sure I hadn't... Because I really thought I had. The reason is, it sounds a lot like what Peter preached in Acts 2. Abraham, Moses, David. And you remember Peter, and this is what tipped me off. Peter said, and David's buried right out there in the churchyard. You still have his tomb. You have his grave. And I was, uh, that's, that's missing. Paul doesn't do that. Okay, this is new. This is different. But it's almost exactly like what Peter preached in Acts 2. For that matter, it's pretty similar to what Stephen said in Acts 7. You know, it's fascinating to think about that. This is, this is pure speculation. I'm not even saying this did happen. I'm saying there's a chance. Paul was training in Jerusalem, probably at the time of Pentecost. He might have heard Peter's sermon. We know for a fact he heard Stephen's because he was there. He was the coat closet check guy. He was the guy that gave you, you dropped your coat off at him. He hung it up on the, on the coat closet and gave you your claim ticket so that when you went to go stone Stephen, you could get your coat back from him. We know he was there. We know that he rejected the gospel when Stephen walked through in great detail the history of Israel leading up to the promise of the Messiah. He may very well have rejected the gospel when Peter preached it in Acts 2. Don't miss the evidence of God's grace in Paul's life. And for that matter, the hope of God's grace in ours and in others. The same guy who wanted to kill Christians just six chapters ago is proclaiming the very gospel he tried to destroy. You think there's that family member, that co-worker, that neighbor, that person I know, they're just too far gone? Let Paul be sort of a, a sign to you. That's just not true. The very guy who tried to squash the gospel when Stephen proclaimed it, literally, is now proclaiming the gospel himself. There's, there are people, you may be one of them, and, and you may know them, but there are people who say, there is absolutely no way God can forgive me for what I've done. And then Paul stands up and says, murderer, what you got? I literally killed people. And here I am proclaiming the gospel. Confident, hopeful in, confidently hopeful in his own uh, eternal security. Notice the, the content of what Paul preaches. The content of his sermon. He covers literally a couple thousand years in just a very short span. And he walks through. He traces Israel's history. Look at verse 17. 
Their history starts when God chose Abraham. Verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. So it started when God chose Abraham and said, look, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to come and follow me. And when you get to where you're supposed to go, I'll let you know. And then you can stop when you get there. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his uh, sons, the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel in Egypt, in slavery. And while they were uh, as slaves in Egypt, uh, he made them great, grew the nation of Israel. The descendants of Abraham became more and more like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. But notice God didn't leave them there. God brought them out of Egypt, delivered them from that slavery, delivered them from oppression, and brought them to their promised land. Wandered in the wilderness for about 40 years and, and taken to Canaan. And then He uh, ran out the, the seven tri- the nations, the nations that were there in Canaan already. He, he defeated them. He goes ahead and, and runs them off so that Israel can have this land flowing with milk and honey. Gr- crops they didn't plant. But he, the people wanted a leader. The people wanted what other people around them had. It's not enough that we should have God as our ruler, that we should have God as our leader. We want people to rule over us. And so they had judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The judges would, would be raised up and rule and lead and they would return. And then the judge would die and then everyone would do what was right in their own eyes. Until finally, they said, no, no, no. We want a king. Everybody around us has a king. We want a king. We need somebody who can be our deliverer and our ruler. We want someone who can protect us and save us from the enemy, but who can also rule over us. And so God gave them Saul and then David. A man after God's own heart. And David was promised that his descendants, it would be his descendants who would would sit on the throne of Israel forever. And, And then a thousand year jump from David to Jesus. Paul walks through this history all to establish, look Israel, you've asked for a ruler. You've asked for a defender. And you have Jesus. He is that ruler. He is that defender. He's the rightful heir to the throne of David. He's the one that God was talking about when He told David, your descendant will sit on the throne forever. He was talking about Jesus all along. And now... That's being fulfilled right here in our midst. Right in our ears. Right before our eyes. Paul's making the point that history marches towards God's fulfilling purposes. 
Jesus wasn't an afterthought. Jesus was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. He knew Christ was coming before the foundation of the world. Jesus isn't the afterthought. He's actually the, the aim, the point of the Old Testament. Israel's history, the aim of the Old Testament is to point them to Jesus. You know, if you're reading the Bible, I made an announcement a few minutes ago about the about biblical theology workshop down in, at Briarwood with Nancy Guthrie. If, you know, if you're reading the Bible and you're reading through the Old Testament and you keep inserting yourself or you keep inserting the United States or you keep inserting you know, whatever into, into Isaiah's prophecies or, 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 you know what, Nehemiah rebuilding walls, that means I've got to go outside and fix the wall, the fence in my backyard. I don't think that's what it means at all. The point is, the Bible is about Jesus. The Old Testament anticipates the promised Messiah, the one who would come and rule over His people with justice and mercy, but who would deliver them and free them from their enemies. And that's how Paul applies this, this sermon in verse 27. Look, the people in Jerusalem, they heard the law and the prophets every single Sabbath day. And then, rather than hearing them as a warning, they fulfilled them by killing Jesus. When they put Him to death, they proved the prophets right. They proved the prophets to be true. And so in verses 26 to 41, Paul warns his listeners not to be like the church in Jerusalem, but instead to listen, to heed the call to faith and repentance and to turn in faith to Christ. But notice he tells them, why they can trust Jesus. You ever run into somebody, or if you yourself wrestle with, you ever kind of think, why is it that I really can trust Jesus with my salvation? And Paul tells us right here in this passage. Look at verse 28. He wasn't guilty, but they put him to death anyway. When he died, they carried and had done everything that was, was said. He, they took him off the tree, off the cross, and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now wit his witnesses to the people. How do you know you can trust Jesus for your salvation? He's not still dead. The empty tomb proves that God accepted him as a sacrifice. The empty tomb proves that his death was perfectly acceptable in our place. That the Father has accepted his life, his righteousness, because we have none, and his blood shed because we deserve to die for our sin. Jesus' resurrection and His ascension prove that He's a worthy sacrifice on our behalf. Did you notice the response of the people? 
You do realize that every time the gospel's proclaimed, whatever setting you may be in, whenever the gospel is preached or proclaimed in any way, shape, or form, there are only two possible responses. People will either reject or rejoice. There's no in-between. There's no other option. They will either reject or they will rejoice. And you saw that unfold at the end of chapter 13 as the Jewish people rejected the Gospel and the Gentiles couldn't get enough of it. In fact, we're told that they, verse 48, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord. There's no other possible reaction to the Gospel but to reject it, but to look at Jesus and say, no, 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 I've got this. I don't need you. I'm not that bad. I'm better than most of the people I know. I really haven't done anything all that wrong. Trust me, I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm, 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 you know, I'm a pretty swell guy. I don't need you. I don't even believe you. You reject Him for any number of reasons, but it's still a rejection. Or you respond in faith and trust in Christ and Him alone for your salvation and rejoice in the promise and hope of the Gospel. These Jews were not the first to reject Jesus. They weren't the last to reject Jesus. These Gentiles weren't the first to rejoice. They weren't the last to rejoice. You know, the reality is you and I should never be surprised by people's response to the Gospel. It should not surprise us when people respond in faith and rejoice at their hope of salvation. That's exactly why we told them the Gospel to begin with. That shouldn't shock us. If we didn't believe in the power of the Gospel to save them, we wouldn't have even told them about Jesus to begin with. It should never surprise us when people respond in faith. It should actually never respond to us when people reject the Gospel. And they turn with deaf ears and blind eyes and a hard heart and walk away. It shouldn't surprise us at all. You want to know why? Verse 48 tells us. The very end of the verse. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Wait, wait, hold on. You mean to tell me there were people appointed to eternal life and those are the people that responded in faith. It's not like they responded and then God appointed them to saving faith. It's the other way around. They were appointed. It was, it was determined, chosen, decided by God in advance. These are the people that are going to respond in faith. And guess what? They did. Which also means that the other people were left to their own sin to begin with. Their own deaf ears and blind eyes and hard hearts and unwilling to hear the gospel. God ordains those who will believe and passes over others. But remember Saul, Paul, the, the guy speaking in this chapter. 
not every rejection of the gospel is a final rejection of the gospel. It may very well be a temporary rejection of the gospel. Paul's done it at least once that we know of. Possibly another significant time, maybe more. Not every rejection of the gospel is a final rejection of the gospel. But verse 48 doesn't apply just in this event. It applies to all of life for everybody everywhere. It is always true that those who are appointed to eternal life will come to saving faith in Christ. In other words, Jesus doesn't lose anybody. He tells us that in John 17, all that the Father has given Him, nobody's going to snatch Him out of His hand. Nobody's going to take them away. They're not going to fall away. He's not going to, oh, I dropped one. You know, we pick stuff off. I actually don't know where my keys are. I'm just going to tell you right now, I have no idea where my keys are. I like never do this. They're not in my chair. I put them down on the table in there, but I've got, I really don't know. That, Jesus doesn't do that to people. Be encouraged by that. There are people out there appointed to saving faith in Christ, and they will believe in God's timing when it's time for them to respond in faith. God doesn't lose people. So let that encourage and fuel our gospel proclamation throughout Athens and Limestone County and beyond. Everyone who's appointed to eternal life will believe. Let me make just uh, four applications from this passage. The first, the Bible points us to Jesus. You and I are not the main character. Oh, I'd love to be the main character. You and I are not the main character of the Bible. Jesus is. The the Bible is about... From Genesis... Well, the whole Bible is the story of our rejecting God's rule and reign over us only to be redeemed by His promised Messiah despite the fact that you and I are unworthy of that salvation. The Bible is all the story of God's love for His people And how Christ redeems us from the pit. Second, let me make this observation. Uh, I tried to call attention to it sort of a little bit. This passage begins and ends with a most, possibly the most, hated doctrine in all of Scripture. It begins with the doctrine of election and it ends with the doctrine of election. Did you notice? When Paul stood up to to preach, the first words out of his mouth, God chose our fathers. Verse 48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign over everything, even the saving of sinners. A third application, got to come right on the heels of that. You and I have no idea who those people are. And Paul models for us indiscriminately. I'm using that word on purpose. Because that sounds like a really bad, like that. I don't think you want to be that. This, it models indiscriminately the free offer of the gospel. We proclaim Christ. 
We offer the gospel to all. And those who are appointed to eternal life will believe and others will reject. And that may not even be a final rejection. It may just be a temporary one. You and I have no idea who those elect people are. It's not for us to know. It's not for us to decide. So it's, uh, it's for us to liberally and indiscriminately offer the gospel to everyone so that whoever will come to Christ will come to Christ. Lastly, let me ask this question. Are you a rejecter or a rejoicer? Is rejoicer a word? It is now. Which, which describes you? Are you a rejecter of the gospel? Have you rejected Jesus? Have you said, no, no, I've got this. I don't need Or are you rejoicing in salvation that is all of His grace to an unworthy sinner because of His love for you? If you're a rejecter, would you, would you turn in faith to Christ now? Would you believe in Him even today? If you're a rejoicer, then as we prepare to come to this table, this table set for rejoicers. And so we'll come together as rejoicers. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the, the promise and power of your word that tells the story of of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we pray that You uh, would grow in us a deeper knowledge of and understanding of Your Word, that we would see Christ uh, and Your love for us uh, throughout its pages, that we would understand uh, the way the Old Testament builds to the fulfillment of all of Your promises in sending us the Messiah. And we pray that we would go out as rejoicers, not as rejectors. We pray all of this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.